Well, uh, as I said, we're going to be doing this uh, incarnation series, and we'll, we'll be talking about what it means uh, that, that Jesus became a man. And so uh, we call this season, this four weeks leading up to the Christmas holiday, uh, we call this Advent. Uh, Advent is actually from the Latin word adventus, uh, which means coming. And so we get this word uh, Advent from the Latin, which is also taken from the Greek, the Greek word perusia, which means coming. And so this four weeks leading up to Christmas is all about preparing our hearts for the coming, uh, the coming of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, the first time, that's what we're celebrating right now. We're celebrating the first Advent. Jesus is coming uh, to live among people. And so uh, I think that, that, you know, it seems that, that we barely get the Christmas decorations taken down and put away, that we're putting them back out again, right? And, and so... Uh, my, my concern, I guess, is, is that this, this story has become so familiar to us, you know, the idea that Jesus becomes a man, uh, and we get caught up in all the Christmassy stuff, uh, the commercialism and materialism of Christmas, that, that we can often forget what an astounding thing it is that the God of the universe uh, left his, humble, or his, his glorious abode in heaven uh, and took on human flesh. And so uh, just to consider what love and humility it took for Jesus to do that. But you know, if that's all that happened, if Jesus only became a man and lived among us, the story would be incomplete. A God who only lives with us cannot save us, right? He has to do more than that. He had to live a sinless life. He had to be completely without blemish, and then he had to take on our sin, uh, assume our sin on himself, and then uh, go to the cross and pay the penalty that God demands for sin. So uh, we celebrate his birth at Christmas, but we cannot separate Jesus's life from his death. We, we cannot separate his incarnation uh, from his death, his burial, and his resurrection, because Jesus came to die. And then God raised him from the dead. Jesus ascended into heaven to assume his rightful place at the Father's side. And we live in between the two advents, right? There was the first coming of Christ, Christ born on Christmas Day. And we eagerly await the second advent, Christ's second coming, uh, when Jesus will come uh, to make all things right. He will judge his enemies. He will reward his faithful followers. For us believers, we will get our new resurrection bodies, and Jesus will judge his enemies, and we will rule with him uh, on this earth. And so we look forward to the second advent, but in the meantime, we wait. Uh, and so as we wait, we will talk about Christ's incarnation during uh, this Christmas season, his, his first coming. And uh, volumes have been written on this, and there's no way that I can cover or do this topic justice in four short sermons, uh, but we're going to take this approach uh, to it. This week, we're going to look at the pre-existent Christ, the pre-existent Christ. Uh, what does that mean, that Jesus is pre-existent, uh, that he is eternal? Uh, who was Jesus uh, before he was born? What was he doing? Uh, these are all the things that we talk about when we're talking about the pre-incarnate Christ, and we'll tie that to this week's Advent theme, which is hope. And then next week, we'll talk about how the Old Testament predicted uh, this coming Savior, uh, how the Old Testament prophets predicted it, and how some people uh, in the Old Testament and some events in the Old Testament uh, symbolized Jesus' coming and foreshadowed it. And we'll tie that to the theme of peace. Uh, in the third week, we'll look at Jesus' incarnation from the standpoint of his deity. Why is it important that Jesus uh, be 100% God and 100% man? What is the significance that Jesus actually remained 100% God after he became a man? 
And so we'll talk about that and we'll tie that to the theme of joy. And then in the last week, which will be Christmas Eve morning, uh, we will look at this last theme, which is Jesus' humanity. Why is it important that Jesus was 100% man? What is the significance of that? Why is that important to our theology? And then we'll tie that to the Advent theme of the week, which is love. So that's where we're going in the next four weeks. And, and this season is, is an incredible season uh, for preachers and for worshipers, for all of us, because uh, you know sometimes we can, we can, like the last couple of weeks we were talking about Israel, and that's something important that we have to talk about. But during Advent, the focus is 100%, it's on Jesus. Uh, and so that's what we'll be talking about and, and we'll be thinking about how is it? How can we wrap our minds around the idea uh, that Jesus humbled himself, became a man, plagued by all the weakness, uh, all the infirmity, and everything that, that uh, humanity experiences, and then die in our place. Uh, how can the God of the universe do that? Uh, there's no more humbling truth, I think, in, in all the world than, uh, than the God of the universe left heaven and became a man and dwelled among us. So this week we'll consider the pre-incarnate Christ. When I say pre-incarnate, I mean before he was born before he was born. So long before Jesus was born as a human baby, he existed, right? He pre-existed his birth. And in fact, he, he existed eternally. So, uh, I missed that slide. Uh, so the meaning of pre-existence, the meaning of pre-existence, it means to exist before, right? To exist before. And when we say that Jesus pre-existed his birth, we're actually saying something quite profound, aren't we? Because, you know, for you and I, uh, we, were, we did not pre-exist our birth, right? We were nothing more than, than uh, an idea in God's mind that he had planned for what we were going to do and what we were going to be, uh, but we did not exist before our birth. But Jesus did. Jesus existed before his birth. And so when Jesus said to the Jews in John 8:58, before Abraham was born, I am that is a statement of profound theological significance, isn't it? Uh, that was a claim to uh, eternality, uh, to preexistence, to deity, all of these things Jesus said in just a couple of words, right? And the Jews knew what he was saying. They were flabbergasted by it. And then he takes on the divine name, I am, right? This is the name uh, that, that, that God spoke from the, burning, from the, from the bush to Moses. Uh, you know, who shall they say? What is your name? Who shall they say? Tell them I am sent you. Tell them I am sent you. This is the divine name, and Jesus is invoking it here. And so they knew what he was talking about, claiming that he was as eternal as God is. And at the end of his life, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, 5, he said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before, with you before the world began. Before the world began. So uh, these apostles hearing this prayer, and uh, they would have known uh, that Jesus is making this claim, obviously, that he was alive, that he existed before the world began. This is not the first time he made that claim, and so this was not news to them. But this is the Bible's consistent testimony about who Jesus was. In fact, the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, it doesn't take us very long, Genesis 1.26 now, where God says, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And so from very early on, from the first chapter in the Bible, we know uh, that something is going on, right? God is not alone. And through other verses in the Bible, through later theological development and further revelation from God in his word, uh, we come to understand that Jesus was with him too. Jesus was with him. 
And so that means that there was never a time when Jesus did not exist. And there will never be a time that Jesus does not exist. He is the eternal God. Okay, so Jesus is eternal. He pre-existed his birth and he will always live. So now let's talk about the activity of the pre-existent Christ. You know, one thing we know before Jesus took on human flesh is that he was actively involved in creation. Uh, from 126, Genesis 126, which we just read, from John 8:58, which we just read, uh, we know that Jesus was uh, present at creation. We also know that he was actively involved in creation. So when we look at uh, Paul's writing in his letter to Colossians, Colossians 1:16, uh, we know, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so Paul's testimony in Colossians is that Jesus pre-existed his birth, he pre-existed the creation of this world, and he created the heavens and the earth. All, thing, all things were created by him. All things were created through him. All things were created for him, for his pleasure, for him to enjoy, and one day uh, for him to ultimately uh, rule here on an, uh, an earthly throne. And John's testimony is the same. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being which has come into being. So John, again, testifies unambiguously that Jesus was there in the beginning, before creation, uh, being God and being with God at the same time. All creation comes into being through him uh, with not one thing accepted. You know, when you look up uh, at the heavens on a starry night and you just see the vastness of the universe, Jesus made all that. Uh, I came across this, uh, this uh, thing on uh, Facebook or Twitter or something uh, where uh, in 1922, uh, the known universe, uh, you probably can't see that, but the known universe was 100,000 light years across, 100,000 light years, staggering, staggering distance. But now with the, uh, with the uh, invention of this uh, James Webb uh, telescope, the known universe is now 93 billion light years across. Now, we can't wrap our minds around what 93 billion light years is, but let me just give this a shot. One light year is six trillion miles. What's a trillion? It's a thousand billion. So six trillion miles, 6,000 billion miles. That's one light year. 93 billion, 93 billion times 6,000 billion light years across. It's mind-blowing, staggering. I mean, we cannot possibly wrap our minds around this. And when we look up at a starry sky, Jesus made all that. All things are made by him, through him, and for him. It's just, it just blows my mind. One more passage about Jesus and creation. Hebrews chapter uh, 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus not only created the whole universe, all things are by him, through him, for him, but he sustains the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, by his own will, he can uphold the universe. Jesus created the laws of nature and the laws of physics by which all things exist. 
And if Jesus stopped upholding the laws of the nature and physics for one nanosecond, this universe would collapse. So I hope we understand how important it is that Jesus pre-existed his birth. Uh, he created the universe and he sustains it as only God could. And then once he created the universe, once Adam and Eve came into existence and people began to populate the earth and multiply, Jesus often appeared in the world as the pre-incarnate Christ, referred to often as the angel of the Lord. So these appearances are called theophanies. Theophanies, God appearing uh, in Jesus Christ as the angel of the Lord in some kind of physical form on the earth to people in the Old Testament. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically ever uh, identify who the angel of the Lord is, but if you read these passages, uh, there, there, there are, uh, you can distinguish between what are angels of the Lord and an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Uh, so it seems when the angel of the Lord appears, this is something beyond the realm of, of created angels. Uh, this is something greater than that. Uh, this, uh, we learn from uh, many passages in the, in the Bible, that this is most likely uh, a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus to people in the Old Testament before his birth and performing the functions that God performs. Uh, and so I'll give just a few examples, although I could give many. Uh, after Hagar conceived uh, Abraham's child Ishmael, remember Sarah treated Hagar harshly, uh, and, and Hagar fled from Sarah. And in Genesis chapter 16, it says this, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, uh, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing the presence of my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. So notice that it's not God the Father, but the angel of the Lord who comforts Hagar and tells her to go back to Sarah. And he promises, I I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be greater than the stars in the sky, greater than the sand on the seashore. Uh, the angel of the Lord promised to do things that only God can do. And so we see him uh, doing this early on in, in, uh, in the Bible. And notice also that when Hagar had nowhere else to turn, you know, she's alone, she's run from Sarah, she's in a desperate situation, Jesus is there as the angel of the Lord, comforting her, giving her what she needs. And I think that's a lesson for us. You know, if the pre-incarnate Jesus, uh, who hadn't even been born yet, could be with the people that he had not even yet revealed himself to uh, in their desperate time of need, why wouldn't the post-incarnate Jesus Christ, who has already lived, died, risen again, promised to be with us forever and ever, never to leave us and forsake us, who loved us enough to die for our sins and lives today, why would that Jesus not be with us just as much as he was with Hagar? And so for this reason, we ought to have great hope when we are in difficult situations. Jesus is with us, he knows us, he knows our needs, and Jesus provides them. 
Later, when Sarah made Abraham send Hagar and Ishmael away, uh, Hagar uh, was out of water, out of food. She sets Ishmael down and she walks away from him so that she would not have to watch this uh, young lad die. The angel of the Lord appears again and says this uh, in Genesis 21. God heard the lad crying and then the angel of, the, of God called to Hagar, from heaven and said to her, what is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So the angel of the Lord speaks of himself and God. Did you notice how interchangeable these terms are and how they each serve the function of God here? Uh, it's, it's very interesting because the angel of the Lord here is, is exercising the same power, the same will as God. He promises to make Ishmael a great nation, which is something that only God can do. And so here's the pre-incarnate Jesus calling and saying that he will make uh, uh, Ishmael into a great nation. And then God opens Hagar's eyes. Hagar sees the water from the well and everything turns out okay for them. In Genesis 22, remember this story, one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. Do you know that it was the angel of the Lord who stopped him? It was the angel of the Lord. Look at this, Genesis chapter 22. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. Your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Isn't that something? It's, I think we always think that it was God who spoke. It's actually the angel of the Lord who speaks, the pre-incarnate Jesus exercising the authority of God, working out his plans, showing compassion, showing mercy, directing the steps of the creatures that he created. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus who stopped Abraham from slaying Isaac and reiterated the promise of descendants to Abraham. Now, I think it's so interesting here that it's Jesus himself who stops Abraham from offering the sacrifice and then it's Jesus himself who actually goes through with being sacrificed for our sins. Isn't that something from all the way back in Genesis? Genesis, and he stops it in, uh, in the Gospels. He fulfills it. He, he takes on death, uh, takes on our sin, and dies for us. It's really something. Uh, one more. Uh, Moses was a shepherd for 40 years after escaping uh, from Egypt after he killed that Egyptian slave. And, and while Moses was shepherding uh, his father-in-law's flock, uh, Exodus chapter 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire uh, from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. So it's the angel of the Lord who changes the course of Israel's history, uh, calls Moses to that bush, and then sends Moses to, to free his people Israel, uh, to give them a future. Moses goes and rescues Israel from bondage. So Jesus pre-exists the world. 
He, he is active in the world as events are unfolding in the world. Jesus is directing the course of events. He intervenes where necessary. He gives people hope, and that is what he does for us today. So let's just consider, with all of what we know now about Jesus before he was even born, uh, why this preexistent Christ gives us hope. You know, when we talk about hope, we're not talking about hope like in the sense of, boy, I hope I hit the lottery, or I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because I have a tea time, right? That, that's not the kind of hope we're talking about. Biblical hope is, is certain hope, is a promise of God where God says this is going to happen. The only thing that's missing is he has not disclosed necessarily the time element. We know it's going to happen. We just don't know when it will happen. And so we have hope in the sense that, that there is absolute certainty that what, is going to be, that what was promised by God is sure to come to pass. So why should Jesus' preexistence and eternality give us hope? Well, one thing we already mentioned is that because uh, the preexistent eternal Christ not only uh, created the universe, but he upholds it and sustains it. And the thing that's important here is that he is directing the universe toward the end that he has in mind. Uh, God and Jesus have already pre-planned out everything that is going to happen. There is a course that this world is on, and God and Jesus are directing it and determined it already. It's already been set. And so this should give us hope. Uh, sustaining the world is not hard for him. The laws of physics were, were nothing for him. He can do that easily. Uh, and since uh, his will is to uphold the universe, he will continue to do that. And he and God share the same will. So we know that whatever they have planned to come to pass will come to pass. And that means for us that nothing can happen outside of God's will, outside of Jesus's will. So whatever you may happen to be going through right now, it's passed through God's hands. God has already given that his seal of approval, and he's going to accomplish something through that. And somehow, whatever it is, it's going to plan, uh, it's going to further his plan for creation, his plan to give himself glory, and his promise to work all things together for our good. The fact that Jesus pre-existed the world uh, and has control over it shows that Satan is not in control of this world. We know that, right? God has given Satan a certain amount of dominion in this world, but Satan is not in control of this world. And evil men are not in control of this world. God is in control of this world. Jesus is in control of this world. This world is headed exactly where God and Jesus want this world to go. And that ought to give us hope because we are in a position where we don't know what's going on in the world, but God does. And so when our circumstances are such that we don't know what's going on, God already knows, and we can trust him with that. So that's the first reason that, that, that the pre-incarnate uh, Jesus gives us hope. The second reason is because his pre-incarnate appearances were to help people. Did you notice that? As, as uh, we were talking about all those pre-incarnate appearances, uh, what we see is that when he appeared to, old, to people in the Old Testament, he appeared to help them. That's why he came. He helped Hagar, he helped Ishmael, he helped Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. That's what he did. But then there are other places, passages that, that we didn't come to, uh, which we'll, we'll look at one in a second, where his, his purpose was not necessarily to help, but to reprimand or to discipline. Uh, so, for example, uh, at the end of Judges 1, uh, remember there that uh, Joshua goes in, uh, they conquer the land, but many of the, the tribes did not conquer all the land that was allotted to them in Judges 1. It says, uh, Manasseh did not take possession of Bet-Shane, 
Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo. Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Bet Shemesh. And so the angel of the Lord disciplines them in Judges chapter 2. Uh, it says this, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down the altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. It's the angel of the Lord who said that. That wasn't God the Father who said that. It was the angel of the Lord who said that to them. And you know, sometimes we can skim over parts of the Bible and not realize that there are two separate people talking to, uh, to the people of Israel. It was the angel of the Lord and it was God. So the angel of the Lord disciplines them uh, for their disobedience. But even discipline is meant to help, right? When we discipline our children, it's not because we're, we're, we, we want bad for them, it's because we want good for them. And that's what God's discipline is to us. As a result of the angel of the Lord's discipline, what happened? They, they turned and they lifted their voices and they wept. And all this tells us, everything we've talked about so far, tells us that Jesus is for us. Uh, Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And you know, that, that may seem like a rhetorical question, but we need to answer it, right? If God is for us, no one can be against us. If Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, as the end of Romans chapter 8 says, there is nothing, nothing can possibly separate us from the love of God. Not sickness, not death, not sword, not famine. All the things that Paul lists there, none of that can separate us from God. And when God says he's for us, it's not like he's rooting for us, like some of y'all may go home and root for the cowboys today, and you'll wear the colors, and you'll jump up and down when good things happen. Uh, you'll root for the cowboys. That's what you do, because you're Dallas people, and I don't blame you for that. <laughs> the playoffs are coming, and it'll all end the same way as it always does. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is that God predetermines. If he was rooting for the cowboys, and if he wanted the cowboys to win, they would win. So, I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions. We wear the colors proudly, right? We cheer, but we cannot affect outcomes. But God can, because he predetermines, he plans out in advance exactly how God is going to work things for good, exactly how he's going to fulfill these promises. And so Jesus' pre-incarnate appearances, uh, doing good for people, uh, shows us that he's working in consistency with his character, working for our good and helping people and giving them hope. So that's a second reason. The pre-incarnate appearances were to help people. And a third reason is because Jesus planned to die to save us. You know, we have no record, of course, of the conversation between God and Jesus before the world began, when they planned the salvation of humanity from the penalty of sin. Uh, we can only imagine th that they set out to create the world, and they set out to create humanity, and they said, you know, what are we going to do with these people? We can either force them to love us and worship us, uh, or we can allow them freedom to, to, to have thoughts and, and to choose. And they might choose to reject us. They might choose to receive us. What are we going to do about that? If we give them freedom, they're going to choose to sin. We know that they're going to choose to sin. So they choose not to create automatons who are required to love God. 
uh, they choose to create people with a certain amount of freedom to choose whether they're going to love God. And so God knew people would choose to sin, right? He knew that. And so what, what do they do? What do they do? God wants his people to live with him forever, and he knows that sin separates them forever. You cannot be with God in your sinful state. Sin has penalties. Somebody has to pay the penalty for sin. God cannot allow unholy people to enter into heaven. So how can God save humanity while still upholding his holiness? Well, there was only one way. By Jesus volunteering to take the punishment that we deserve and giving us his righteousness in its place. So it's not just that Jesus pre-existed the universe. It's not just that Jesus uh, came and lived uh, pre-incarnate among people in these appearances of the angel of the Lord. It's that the gospel pre-existed the creation of the world. Isn't that something when you think about it? Before the world even began, the gospel already existed. They planned that Jesus would come and die for the sin of humanity long before the world was even created. Jesus would come to the earth, uh, possessing 100% deity, 100% humanity at the same time. He would, he would take on flesh. He would receive God's punishment for our sin. And so for us to be saved, all we need to do is to receive that free gift, to, to accept the gift that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin, that we are not worthy to get into heaven by anything that we do, and only by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ can we be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that existed. That gospel was in place long before the creation of the world. So without the pre-existence and eternality of Jesus, there can be no trinity, right? There can be no incarnation. There can be no sinless life. There can be no sacrificial and redeeming death. And there can be no salvation from our sins. So do we see how important the pre-incarnation, uh, the pre-incarnate Jesus is? That's why his pre-incarnate state, his, his eternality and his deity give us hope. Now, this Christmas season, just like every Christmas season, we are overwhelmed by the busyness of the season, right? The decorations that have to be put up, the shopping that has to be done, the, the, the relatives we have to see, the family that's coming in, uh, the gifts that have to be wrapped, every single thing that, that happens, the feasts we have to prepare, all of this happens every Christmas season. This year, uh, as every year, uh, we will just pray on Sunday mornings at least that we can put some of that aside, that we can pause, that we can remember that that is not what the Christmas season is about. Uh, it, it, it reminds us that, that before the creation of the world, before we even existed, God was planning to give us hope. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have hope because God existed before the universe began, and he planned to fulfill all these promises to us by his own blood. Long before God created us, long before he created us, he anointed those who would trust him as Lord and Savior. And those of us who have, all of us in this room, I do pray and I do believe, uh, we have eternal life right now. It's not just that we're waiting for eternal life after we die. We're already in this state of eternal life, and so we should be the most hopeful people who ever lived because we know where we're going. We know uh, that we will live with Jesus forever. Uh, Jesus is our hope. So let's close with a couple of applications. The first one is this. Uh, to let Jesus be your ever-present help. And one of Jesus' attributes is omnipresence. Omnipresence. That means that Jesus can be everywhere at the same time. 
And if he can be everywhere at the same time, that means that he can help each and every one of us as though we were the only people who exist. Even if we were the only people alive, he can help all 7.5 billion, closing in on 8 billion people on the planet. He could do that because Jesus lives outside of time. He's not encumbered by linear time like we are. And so he can be everywhere at once and he can help each one of us in our time of need. And if he helped Moses and Hagar and Abraham and Ishmael, even before he was born, uh, he can certainly show up and help us. And that should give us hope uh, that Jesus is there to help when we need it. And so let Jesus be your ever-present help. And secondly, uh, let the hope of Christmas give you heavenly perspective. Heavenly perspective. Um, The fact that Jesus has existed in eternity past is something that we cannot comprehend. And yet he's been planning for this day that we would be in this room worshiping him today before we could even count time. That is how uh, heavenly perspective works. And so when we think about that, we have to realize that this world is not all there is, right? In this war, uh, we deal with sickness and death. We deal with war and conflict. Here there are bills to be paid, and there is a sickness, and there is relationships gone awry, and there are uh, house payments and car payments. Uh, There are repairs that need to be done. There is unrelenting work. There is oppressive stress. We experience all this in the world, but this world is not all there is. We are only strangers and we are aliens passing through this world to the next world on our way to glory. So Jesus came from heaven to live on this earth and then he went back to heaven and he went to prepare a place for us and we are going there too. He's preparing a place for us even now. So what are you worried about today? What are the things today that are causing you to lose hope? What are the things that that make you doubt Uh, whether Jesus is for you. We all have financial troubles or health troubles or troubles with family or troubles with our boss or conflict with our neighbor or other family members. We have all this stuff in this world, but we also have to remember that, that this is just a blip. This is a tiny little blip on the continuum of eternity that lasts forever and ever and ever and this is nothing compared to what we're going to, to the goodness that we are going to experience. And Jesus has this all under control. We don't have to worry about what we can't change. So just give your fears to Jesus. Give your present fears to Jesus. And, and instead of worrying, try to look forward to the glory of heaven and all that is going to mean. Uh, and so our lives are just so short compared to all that eternity is. And I'm not saying our troubles aren't real and that they're not pressing and they aren't stressful. They are. But at the same time, we are strangers and aliens. We have something more to look forward to. And we can thank Jesus for that. Christmas is the proof that Jesus loves us. Jesus has come and he's coming again. So let those facts fill you with hope. Let's pray. Lord God, the fact that you have existed eternally it's a cause for great hope, Lord. It is the foundation of our hope when, when we consider all that it means. Uh, without it, Lord, you could not be God. And so we just uh, praise you for this, Lord. And as we work our way through this Advent series, I just pray that you will continually remind us, Lord, of your goodness, your greatness, and your sovereignty more than anything, Lord, that, that whatever it is that we're going through, you are there. And you came to solve the biggest problem we have, Lord, the problem of our sin. And so we will experience trouble on this earth. You promised it. 
But at the end of this earthly life, Lord, we know where we're going because we have trusted in you. And we thank you so much that you left your heavenly dwelling, became a man, lived and died for our sins, and returned to heaven so that we know we may follow you there as well. We pray in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.